If you would all uh, join me and stand as we read God's Word out of Psalm 142. We'll read the complete chapter. I still hear pages flipping. I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. In the way wherein I walked have they privately laid a snare for me. I looked on my right hand, and beheld there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. I cried unto the Lord. O Lord, I said, thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall encompass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. Let's pray. As we stand here, Lord, we just want to praise your name and worship you and thank you for saving us, Lord. We love you, Lord, and I hope everyone here loves you also, Lord, that they know you. Lord, you've done such great miracles in the past. And Lord, we're looking forward to your coming in the future. Lord, we just ask that you take this time, Lord, as the men on the way to Emmaus were talking with Christ, and they didn't know it yet, but they said our hearts did burn within us. Lord, I pray this morning as your word is open to us that our hearts would just burn and yearn for you. Lord, we're very weak. We're like sheep. We go astray very often. But we need your word and you to bring us back to the full. Lord, I don't know what's going on in people's hearts and minds this morning. Lord, only you do. But I pray, Lord, that they take these next few minutes and just lean on you, as the song said, just come to Jesus. All of us need it. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This uh, psalm I referred to some time ago, I preached so many messages, I just don't remember. Sometimes it's all muddy in my mind, but I had referred to this one some time ago, but today I want to take the time and uh, deal with the whole text. Uh, Next week, Lord willing, uh, we're going to get into Psalm 143, which happens to be the psalm uh, that really affected my life that uh, has really helped others as as I counseled them. And these couple chapters are chapters that I use a lot in counseling. And I'll actually walk through with people uh, slowly through each of these phrases as we'll try to do some of that even today. Um, there's, there's some correlations between the two chapters, no doubt. Uh, the one thought, my spirit is overwhelmed within me, that phrase is in both of these chapters. 
And I'm going to try not to be redundant in these two messages. And, and I don't think I will because next week we're going to get into a little bit more of understanding the enemy of the soul. And sometimes we think that the battles that we as Christians go through are all on the physical. And that's how we oftentimes look at life is, is really at the physical and forget sometimes about the inner man. This inner man that we have needs to be renewed, revived on a daily basis. It is so easy for us as Christians to start to get into routines of life that are actually detrimental to our spiritual health. And we start going downhill, and then we get to this valley, this cave of life, and we say, how did I get here? I had that question for several people over the last month as I was counseling with them. Talking about the problems, the despair that they are in, whether it's marriage or whatever is going on in their life. And you stop and say, how, but how did you get there? And you can almost sense them stopping and thinking, I hadn't even thought of that. We just see where we're at and we don't realize that there has been a process that has been happening in our life that got us to this place. Sometimes these despairs that we find ourselves in are self-inflicted. In other words, oftentimes Christians are going through the problems because of sin in their life. Um, what's sad is we've even come to a place where as Christians when we're doing wrong and we find ourselves on skid row and we say, God, why did you do this to me? Why did you allow this to happen to me? And God's like, I didn't do it. <laughs> You did it. This message that we're going to have today and Lord willing next week has nothing to do with that. It isn't the sowing and reaping. Because much of what we go through, even in America, is, is stupidity, breeds stupidity that brings bad things in life. Somebody said, do you, do you mind your job? I said, no, I love my job. But there's times that you deal with people, it's just like you stop and you say, you really don't see this, do you? You really don't understand what's going on in your life and you're seeing the problems and you think it's everybody else's fault and you are the center, you are the hub. And the decisions that you have made now are spiraling out of control and you have to find somebody to blame it on and it's your fault. And I'm sorry if I don't sound like I have a lot of compassion, but when people don't take responsibility for their own actions, I can't help them. They, they've got to come to the light themselves, I guess. These messages that we're going to have are different. The philosophy that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people is not biblical. There are a lot of mindsets out there in Christianity or the name of Christ that are proclaiming this name it, claim it. God wants you happy, healthy, and wealthy, you know? And this mindset is that everything is supposed to be a rose garden, and if you don't have the rose garden in your life, then you're not right with God and you don't have faith. So it's your fault again. Okay? Well, what we're going to see here is uh this had nothing to do with David and sin. This had nothing to do with him doing something wrong 
and then this is a repercussion for it. Because oftentimes we'll look in the Scriptures and see something bad happening, and if you just look back a couple chapters prior to that, then you'll say, uh-huh, I see why this happened to him. You look at Jacob's life, you know, and you see all these bad things happening, but you look back at the beginning and you say, yep, the deception, it's come back on your head, and yeah. Well, here within the text that we're talking about, David, who is not yet, not yet really king, although he's been anointed, he's not taken the office. And this man has enemies. But he has one enemy in particular. There's you know, debate which chapter for sure in Samuel that this is referring to, but um, we're going to look at the one probably that most likely it was. So look back with me first of all to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, that's right before 2 If you didn't know that. Okay. And we're in chapter number 22. Now while you're there in chapter 22, let me give you a little bit of background of what's happening in this text. Uh, matter of fact, do you, do you, I think I can get it all done. I'm going to try to get it all done today. Uh, keep your finger there and go back to chapter 18. This is really where it all started. And you really need to see this. So you're, you're keeping a thumb back in Psalms. You got a toe in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, and now we're looking at chapter 18. So here's what's going on. David is really being used by God. And as they are in this time of military thrust with the Philistines and others, uh, David is going out and like killing multiple of them. And so the ladies, to herald the victors, which were David, in particular Saul too, but it says Saul's killed his thousands and David killed his tens of thousands. So the king was accredited less than David. And he's like, I don't like that. Well, verse 9 says, Saul eyed David from that day forward. That was the beginning of this whole battle in this enemy. But you need to see something else. David, of course, wants to kill him. He tries to do it, verse 11. But verse 12, Saul was, what's the next word? Afraid. You say, wait a minute, he's the king. David just this kid that's coming up through the ranks. But David was anointed by God, and Saul knew that God's hand was upon him, and it created a fear. Now you need to understand this. We will have enemies. And sometimes those enemies, looking at you and I, and have even hatred, and here is the word, sometimes they'll even be afraid of you. Because there's something that you have that they don't. And we fear that which we do not understand. That which is a mystery to us, something hidden, will be then that which people look at you and say, I don't get it, you're weird, I'm going to stay away from you. Look at it as it goes on. Because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. So David had that anointing. Therefore Saul removed him from him, made him his captain over thousands, and he went out and came in before the people. So in other words, stay away from me. 
Look at verse 14. And David behaved himself wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. You see that repeat? Wherefore, verse 15, then when Saul, Saul, excuse me, Saul, Saul, that he behaved himself very wisely, again it says, he was afraid of him. You say, what the actions did Saul take? He started to go after him, attempting to kill him over and over again. David, because of this, has to separate himself from Israel. You'll remember Jonathan, in the mix of all of this, which was King Saul's son, loved David. Greatest illustration of the friendship that you can ever find in the Word of God. And this friendship, though, Jonathan was for David and ultimately against his own daddy, and daddy knew that and everybody knew that. But David is now out, and he's on his own. And uh, Saul would take legions, armies, to track one man. Aren't you glad that you're not that one man? Could you imagine the military deciding you were the person that needed to be taken out and killed and you were running into the mountains and hiding in cave after cave knowing that the anointed king of Israel wants your head. And that's exactly what it did. It's interesting how time in and out David could have taken the life of Saul. Matter of fact, there was this one time that, that he was there in the cave and, and David went in and he cut a piece of his robe, piece of his material, and they took it and it's just like, I could have killed you right there. But I didn't. Because he said, I will not touch God's anointed. But it is in all this text that we see chapter 22, verse 1. There, David, therefore, I'm sorry, back there now, aren't we? Chapter 22, verse 1. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave, Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. I do want you to notice verse 2 with me. And every one that was in distress, it's, it goes beyond just David. The kingdom is in a disarray because of the leadership not following God's plan and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto Him and He became a captain over them and there were with Him about 400 men. So the people, that the tyrant David, or Saul was over, they, they end up running to David. I'm trying to show you the mind of David in the writing of chapter 142 of Psalms. David is running for his life. And yet, God's hand is upon him. And because God's hand is upon him, he's like a magnet to people. And so all these people are coming to him almost like, please be our captain, be our leader. So it's not that he takes care of himself running for his life. Now it's as though he's accountable for so many others. And if you know these stories as it goes back and forth, there, there are these times that people are stepping in and he just didn't know whether he could trust them or not. Are they a spy coming from Saul to find out what's going on with me and is he going to go back 
I mean, he was my man, but is he my man now? Saul was going through much of the same thing. And you stop and you say, how could he have handled that kind of mental pressure? It goes beyond the physical. I think if David were able to stand up before you and give you the real true story, I wondered if he would have said these words. It would have been easier if they would have just killed me. That would have been just the easy way. Okay, I'm dead. I'm, 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 I'm in glory now. But the hard thing is living. Living day in and day out. That's why he talks about the land of the living. It's the here and the now. Now let's go back to Psalm 142 and we'll take a quick look at this. In verse 1, now that we see what's going on in his life, verse 1 he says, I cried unto the Lord with my voice, audible, crying out loud. Um, and you say, is this just voice? I would say, as we see many of the other Psalms, that tears were flowing down David's cheeks. Even though there was probably some dehydration going on, I'm sure he found some tears. You ever talk to somebody, they said, I don't think I have any more tears to cry. And this man is crying to God. Sometimes we as men think it, Think it immature, think it feminine. Women or kids cry. No, our Savior wept. We have a weeping prophet in the Old Testament, Jeremiah. We have, we have David as an example. Uh, there is something that you're going to see as it develops here that God is trying to show you and I one of the most therapeutic ways that a Christian can get through his or her turmoil that he's in. Okay? That's why we turn to these, the Psalms, these songs of, of praise, but also development of problems that develops into praise. And it begins with you talking to God. And not just talking, but crying to God. Uh, much of the Scripture teaches us about how we're to pray. We're to pray for others. We pray for our missionaries. We, we pray for the health. We see the prayer list. We pray for the cancer victims. We pray for our shut-ins. We pray for the leadership in the church, the deacons and the trustees. We're doing that this morning. We, we, you know, we pray and pray and pray. There's so many out there. And sometimes I think that we forget how much we are, though, to do a, a internal judgment of what's going on inside of me, not what's going on inside of my, my wife or my husband or my children or people in the church. All this must be so hard. But we have to stop sometimes and see what's going on with me because my relationship with the Lord is not there. We can sometimes cover it with dealing with others and not dealing with what we are burdened with ourselves that nobody else really understands and nobody else can be a friend to me. It's me. That old song, 
It's not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. David is not being selfish here. It's not self-centeredness. This is a cry to God for help for the internal. There is nothing wrong with seeking counsel. There is nothing wrong with talking to a friend, to your spouse, who should be your greatest friend here on this earth. There's nothing wrong with that. But this, this text is going to show you wherein lies the real answer. That David concludes. David was that man after God's own heart, right? David understood the heart of God and understand as we talked about the love of God that takes away the fear that we could have. And now we're in practice. Here's the, here's the real root of how does that take place? So he cries with his voice. And he began to be detailed with the supplication, asking God to supply something specific for his life. In verse 2, I poured out my complaint before him. So now you say, oh, it's okay to complain to God, right? And that's how we would kind of interpret this thought of of complaining uh, to him. Well, he poured out. It's interesting, the word there, this audible cry, it is, is the word for spilling or gushing out like you were to take a big pail and you begin to empty it out and you're pouring it out. And that's what you're doing with your internal issues, problems, with God is you're pouring it out to Him. Listen, you have to be, and I have to be specific with my God of what is going on. One of the most marvelous things about being a pastor, and I have a chance to consult with people and encourage them when they're bawling their head off and they're overwhelmed and they don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. Everything is negative. We'll talk about that covering that happens is you just let them talk. And it's amazing how they talked for half an hour. I read a couple verses, prayed with them, and they say, thank you so much, I feel so much better. Okay, really I didn't give a lot of advice. Gave them some concepts. But as I see this, it's more that we as human beings are made to pour it out. But we do have to be wise in who we pour out to and what we pour out to people. Please. We have to pour out, most most importantly, to God. And it is sometimes easy for us to pour out to family or to a counselor, to a pastor. But herein lies the answer. We as Christians can pour it out to God. Gushing out these volumes of problems and being specific. Here, Lord, I got an enemy. They are in great number. And they're trying to kill me. I'm overwhelmed. I'm looking at my right. I'm looking all around. And I don't know who I can trust. Jonathan's not here. There's nobody I can say and confide in. No man. He pours out that complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. 
Verse 3, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me. Some of you are joyful and happy all the time. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> okay, you say, well, preacher, you're supposed to be happy all the time. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. I know that. Okay, and I preach that. But do you honestly think your preacher is 24-7 always rejoicing in the Lord? Do you really think anybody in this room is continually always finding that uh, uh, right perspective and attitude towards the problems that we have in life? The answer is I doubt it. I've not met one. If you are one, I'd love to talk to you. You should be up here and I should be sitting down. Because if David had the issues, I think if we are honest with ourselves, we have them. As he begins to use this phrase, he complains unto God. The word complaint is not like, boy God, this is just wrong. I just can't believe you did this to me. That is not what the word complain here means. Nor is he complaining about man. It's not that thought of, of uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to get, I'll go ahead and say it. Um, this is one of my issues. I'm sorry, I, I, it just evolved over the last 15 years in Christianity and if you said it to me, I love you, I disagree with you on this, but when people say to me, I'm angry and mad at God, I don't understand that. I honestly, as a Christian, when I look at the Scriptures, I don't see believers angry at, I mean, I don't like my situations, I don't like flat tires, you know, I don't like problems in life either. But to shake a fist at God and say, yeah, it's your fault. You're, you're just a bad God. I'm really angry at you. I can't believe you took my spouse, or I can't believe you did this or this to me. It's like, when I look in the Scriptures, the people who got angry at God, they got dead. I mean, what happened to the fear of the Lord? Is He not God, and we're the potter and the clay? You follow me? This complaint is not, Lord, you really messed up this time. Boy, you just did it. Man, you didn't see it my way. You should have seen it my way. That's not the complaint. It is a word that means meditate, the Hebrew word. Complaint, literally, as we would see it in our English language, would be to meditate, contemplate. Of course, we understand the meditation means that we occupy our thoughts on something. We've developed it inside. It's that thing that you're going to bed with. It's the thing you're waking up with. It's the thing when you're by yourself having your cup of coffee. You're, you're going through this, musing it in your mind and going over it and over it again. And that which occupies your mind, then you begin to express out loud, pouring it out to God. And then as you begin to pour this thing out to God, God says, that is your meditation what it is that's bothering you specifically, and you begin to pour that out to the Lord. Then he talks about the overwhelming spirit. Uh, the word um, to, uh, for overwhelm means to cover. It, it can be translated like a cloth. And you say, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, it does if you think this way. When you cover something up underneath, that which is contained inside is now in darkness. And what he's talking about is what is overwhelming, overcoming me, overlaying 
layers over top of me, and that I now am dwelling inside of this darkness. I am covered up inside of these sorrows and these troubles, and my spirit is overwhelmed. It's like it's totally uh, around me, compassing me about, and I can't get out of it. Overwhelmed. You can't punch your way out. You can't cut your way out. It's there. You're surrounded and you're overwhelmed by it. And when, when that happens, when my spirit, verse 3, was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. I put a little note beside that. God sees it all. Okay? No overwhelmed situation that you are in, are you there And God said, oh, I'm so sorry I didn't cover your back this time. I didn't see that one coming. Okay? God is all over it. There is nothing that is happening in your life that you are now burdened with that God does not see. And there is a direction and a path that we are taking that God says, I know that path. I know where you're going. And I know the cave that you're in. I know who you're running from. I know the enemy. I know all of these things. Even in the way therein I walked, have they privily laid a snare for me. If you go back to that chapter, it says that Saul said, uh, we're going to go ahead and put David out to war. Just go ahead and put him out there. And uh, what we hope to happen is, because I see God's hand on him, and I'm a Scared to death of this guy because of God's hand on him. So I'm going to put him in the leadership, captain over lots of people, and to go kill the Philistines. And he says, and I hope the Philistines kill him so that I don't have to. You want to talk about a snare? Saul's purpose was to kill David, and he didn't say, oh, by the way, I'm just going to put you out into battle. I hope you die, my friend. But that's really what he was saying. David knew all this was going on. David was no dummy. And neither are we. This is leading much into next week's message. So we'll move on. So he says in verse 4, I looked on my right hand and beheld, and there was no man. And I remember first studying this out, and I'm like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Because it just talked about all the people that were coming to see him at the cave, and there were people there. And that's when it hits you. There are times that we as Christians are in church and we're surrounded with people. We're surrounded with family. We're surrounded at work. We're surrounded in our nation. People, you can't go anywhere without people, right? But that's not what he's talking about. That person that you can say, I absolutely positively trust with my life. That friend that I know that they're not more concerned about their own livelihood than they are for mine. Down the road, by the way, I'm going to give you a twist on this message, and I can't wait to preach it. It's going to take me about four months until I get it together. It's, it's a message on loyalty, and I cannot wait to preach that one. hope the Lord keeps me here long enough to do that one. Uh, it's, it's, it's in the life of David also. David looks, and there's nobody there. kind of reminds you when our Savior was leaving the upper room and going to the mount to have the prayer. And while he's there in Gethsemane, 
after the men failed in their prayer, and he's praying by himself, Judas Iscariot comes and gives him the betrayal kiss. And at that moment, I know Peter got in, he tried to do his thing, and we know that. But through that process, these men scattered. And here is Jesus by himself with the soldiers, all by himself. And he looked to his right, and there's no disciples. He looked all around. There's nobody that he fed. None of the lepers that were healed were there to help by himself. We will have our Gethsemane moments. We will have those times when you are going to stop and say, not even my wife, not anyone, my closest friend, can understand this one. I love to read the stories of missionaries. The phrase, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Remember that phrase? Most of us don't know the history behind that phrase, though. Missionary in Africa. And this man, through all the years of traveling thousands of miles by foot, uh, as typical while these missionaries were there in the early years, hundreds of years ago, they uh, started getting sick. Matter of fact, his wife got a disease, and while there, she ends up dying. He continues on year in and year out, and literally nobody knew where he was at. He was just going and preaching and getting sick, and then sicker, recovering and getting sick. Finally, somebody came, and they had supplies. And when they arrived at this specific destination, Livingston came out, frail, nothing but skin and bones, and this man with the supplies looks at him and says, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Uh, I can only imagine the joy in that man's life at that moment to think somebody actually thought of me. Can you imagine in your mind having that phrase, that no one cared for your soul. Now, pardon me while I get a little mission-minded and a little bit emotional with how I look at this. When I see my Savior, uh, even our Father had to turn His back on Him to the cross. The sin of the world was being laid on Him. You want to talk about the most lonely time for our Savior ever, is on the cross. The darkness came, overwhelmed. And yet he's able to cry out to those who hated, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What a spirit. Uh, the reason Jesus died... The reason he was standing alone was because the sin of the world was being placed on him at that moment. Your sin, my sin, whether you recognize that or not, he did it for you because he loves you. And in that loneliness, in that moment, 
that the sin of the world, literally our death and hell, were being placed on the Savior, He had you and I in mind to restore us to a living hope so that we could have eternal life. And uh, I stop and think about where we are sometimes, I myself, I've got to raise my hand how many times uh, we get through our lives and we get busy with our schedule and we forget that there are people out there that don't care enough for them that they will give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do we care for the souls of men? Or can the world say, no man cared for my soul? Enough that we would leave what is convenient for us to get the gospel for them. Do you know why these folks are heading to Japan? Because they care for the souls. I preached this message not long ago. I won't say his name. One of the men came up and he said, Pastor God, move me in that one. He said, I don't want anybody around me to say that I never cared for their soul. Because the Savior cares for your soul. And it's not the physical. We're talking about the spiritual. Does He care for you physically? Absolutely. But folks, we're dying. We're not getting better. We're going downhill from here. Okay, We're one day closer to death. Sorry about the bad news. But He cares for the real you and I, the eternal being, the the mind, the spirit. And you need to know, God does care for your soul. That's what He goes on and says. Verse 5, I cried unto Thee, O Lord, and I said, You, Thou, art my refuge. That word refuge has to do with a, a, a place of escape, a place of retreat. And what he is saying is, here I am bound up by my enemies, but Lord, you became the place that I could run to, escape from the problems. And yet, he says earlier, he said, refuge failed me. But now he's saying, God, but you are the one. And you are my portion in the land of the living. That's the here and now. I've got to be quick. So he says, attend unto my cry. For I'm brought low. Deliver me from my persecutors. They are stronger than I. We're going to talk about that next week. I want you to notice this phrase. We're going to wind down. It says, bring my soul out of prison. He doesn't say, Lord, kill my enemy so that I can physically go out and do my thing and get out of the cave. He's saying, my mind has been imprisoned. And he's saying, Lord... Bring it out. Only those who have experienced the prison of the mind, the overwhelmed spirit, the captivity that we can be placed into, will fully understand that those bars are heavy. That cement is thick. And you can't bust through it on your own. And those restrictions that are going on inside can lead to depression, the wrong way of thinking. And here he is saying, while in prison, 
we are to call out to God and pour it all out to Him, specifically what it is that is capturing our mind, pour that specifically out to God. Realize it's not a trust and a dependency upon man. Matter of fact, it is just the opposite. Listen to these words. I called upon the Lord in distress, and the Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? The Lord takes my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Our confidence is not who we're looking for in the right hand. Who's there? Who's my right hand man? But rather our focus goes from man to God. That we begin to look up. To seek that help, that hiding place that can only come from Him, that He begins to take that prison that we have in our minds and begins to open up those bars as a result of prayer and true crying unto God. What I sense sometimes in us as Christians is in the midst of our distress and our hardships that we're going through, we begin to, instead of pouring it out to God, we begin to do what we do best, and that's to complain. And to look at things as all negative, 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 negative. And we've not truly said to God, Lord, this is exactly what I'm going through. You dear folks, on the mission field, there are going to be times that you're going to look around and you're going to wonder if anybody's on our side. And you will be there. Uh, you, you've been there, uh, as, as MK brought up through, and I'm sure you've heard mom and dad crying, and it's like, what are we going to do? Uh, do they even pray for us back in the States? Is anybody behind us? I wonder what's going on. Don't forget this one when you're there, okay? We, we're going to get those cards, and we're going to put it, those magnets on the, or put it on the fridge, you know, and there's going to be some people that are going to remember to pray for you along with the other 150 missionary cards that we've got all over our refrigerators and offices and places. But you have to understand, no one can care for your soul like the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you are there and it seems like the enemy, Satan, is, is just winning the battles and people aren't getting saved and your health is going downhill and you're wondering what's going to happen with your baby and all these things are going on, don't forget, God has not forsaken you. He is your anchor. He is your anchor. I have to do it, I'm sorry. Hebrews chapter 6. If you need to leave for work, it's okay. It's okay. The answer is recognize that God is the one. Hebrews chapter 6. While we're turning there, I want to read to you some familiar words. We don't have this hymn in our hymn book, but it is entitled, We Have an Anchor. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life? When the clouds unfold their wings of strife, when the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? 
we have an anchor. Think these guys knew what they were talking about when they wrote the hymns? We have an anchor that keeps the soul. And that's what we're talking about today. It is steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock, which cannot move. Grounded, firm, and deep in the Savior's love. That's why we sing hymns here, by the way. We actually learn some concept from the Scriptures. Right here, Hebrews 6, verse 17. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel and to confirm it by an oath. So he's talking about God's promise and God's oath. That by two immutable things, I believe that is referring to the oath and the promises that come from God, two witnesses here, in which it was impossible for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation. That's that encouragement. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entered into that within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made in high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You say, Carl, how can you summarize this for me? Our God, it is impossible for Him to change His mind when it comes to His promises and His oaths that He has had for you and I. These promises are sure. These promises are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our rock that we have driven deeply that anchor in. We are the vessel. We are out there in the water, anchored to this rock. Even though the billows, the problems, the storms are going to take this old vessel, it's going to bust it all over, we're not going anywhere. Because we are fastened to the anchor of the Lord Jesus Christ. In that anchor dealing with the steadfast inside of our Savior, taking our eyes off of the circumstances and keeping it focused on Him, we are anchored to Him. And thank God, He is our High Priest that has entered in behind that veil into the Holy of Holies, which is heaven itself. And He is there, our High Priest, interceding, praying, if you will, for us, because He cares for your soul. And that's why David could say, this is how I look. I want you to call me, and I will try to consult, and I want you to pour your heart out to me. Some of you, there's serious things going on in your lives, and we want to talk. But this message is about this. I can't fix it. Your wife or your husband can't fix it. We can listen, we can turn you to the Word, but ultimately we're getting the mind focused and fixed back on Him. And when we trust and depend upon Him, and not on man, and not on government, the princes, but that our trust is in God, it begins to allow us to free those things 
releasing them to our God, casting our cares upon Him because He cares for us, and then we leave it there. Take your burdens to the Lord and leave it there. If you've poured it out, it's no longer in your possession. So if you're still holding on to it, you haven't poured it out yet. You're still doing it on your own. And this is what he is saying. Pour it out to God. Lord, we need your help in everyday things of life.